Well, good morning, church. Fear is the sand and the machinery of life. Fear is the sand and the machinery of life. I don't know who said it, but I like it. So true, isn't it? We have fears. And how does that kind of grind away at us as we try and live life? We have our fears. Reminds me of a story of a one summer night during a severe thunderstorm. A mom was tucking her young son in the bed and she was about to turn off the light uh, when the boy asked in a trembling voice, Mommy, I'm afraid. You stay with me in my bed all night? Smiling, the mother gave him a warm, reassuring hug and, and said tenderly to him, I, I can't, dear. I, I have to sleep in Daddy's room. A long silence followed and at last it was broken by the little boy saying, Well, that big sissy, that big sissy. Fears, not just kid stuff. All of us can identify with fear. Well over 300 times in Scripture, we find the phrase, fear not. And those two words often are accompanied by the reason we ought not to fear. Fear not, God says, for I am with you. What is it you fear How does the presence of God speak to that? Is His presence a living reality in your life? God went out of His way to be with you in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is literally God with us. Jesus is our Emmanuel. We find that in in Matthew chapter 1 when Mary is told that she would call the one who was born, call him Emmanuel. And as you likely know, that isn't the first time Emmanuel appears in the Bible. Look with me in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, as we continue to work our way through this study in Isaiah and addressing the question, why are we here? What is our purpose? Why are we here? Why do we exist? Well, it's in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we find that the first uh, occurrence of that word, Emmanuel, It says, familiar words now, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son. We'll call him Emmanuel. And as I touched on last week, Isaiah's word choice for virgin here is somewhat ambiguous, intentionally so. It's as if he didn't want to just stress the virginity, but neither did he wish to dismiss it either. You see, the richness and diversity of the word choice that he uses here for virgin leaves things open for something in Isaiah's day, yet points to an ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, which would not be any ordinary event. And of course, that that event that was not so ordinary is the birth of Jesus Christ. And it is unmistakable that Mary had no sexual relations with Joseph or any other man. She conceived through the Holy Spirit and Matthew and his gospel is crystal clear in telling us the one born to the Virgin Mary was a fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 written hundreds of years, roughly 700 years prior to Jesus' coming. And as we're going to see in uh, 
over the next two weeks in Isaiah chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 11, the coming Messiah is going to be fleshed out uh, even some more, and we'll get to that. But for our purposes this morning, I want us to see that in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that the word Emmanuel first appears, but then in a less familiar passage in Isaiah, in chapter 8, it is used in a second time. It's that second occurrence that's going to get our attention this morning. All right, so if you're not there, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 8 this morning. Isaiah chapter 8 this morning, I want you to follow along uh, with me as we look at this passage here. And and as I said last week, uh, Isaiah chapter 8 is really a companion passage to Isaiah chapter 7. They really go hand in hand. Chapter 8 helps us to better understand chapter 7. All right, I want to give you some truth lessons for our time in the Word this morning. Some truth lessons. First of all, first of all, fear is winning when people look big and God looks small. Fear is winning when people look big and God looks small. All right, uh, Isaiah chapter 8. Now, I need to remind you again of the historical setting here, and and, and there's a lot we have to work through here, and yet I'm trying to kind of just boil that down and not get get lost in it, and so you got to do some of your digging and some of your work for yourself, okay? But, But I want to remind you of the historical setting. Two nations, Syria, northern Israel, formed this alliance, and they're threatening to attack the southern kingdom, two tribes of Judah, often called the House of David. And as we saw last week, the people of Judah, the house of David, they were shaking in fear. Even worse than that is that their king was also shaking. And what is it that they they feared? What, what What did Ahaz fear? People. People. The fear of what people could do to him started to control his life. The potential threat was totally occupying the king's time and the king's mind because people started to look so big to King Ahaz. And have you noticed in your own life that when fear of people starts intruding uh, your thoughts and uh, people start to look really big, right? I mean, I'm sure you know the feeling. It's, It's fear of people, simply put, is replacing God with people. It's seeing people as bigger, more powerful, more significant than God. And it starts to rule us. And when we fear people, we're casting a vote against the trustworthiness of God. All right, God speaks into that. All right, Isaiah chapter 8, I hope you're here uh, in the passage. Chapter 8, verse 3, Isaiah speaks in the first person here, okay? Isaiah says, then I went to the prophetess, that's Mrs. Isaiah, okay? I went to the prophetess, and she conceived. All right, now you're all smart enough in this room to know that when Isaiah says, I went to the prophetess, connected to she conceived, you don't need me to explain it to you, right? You got this. All right, continue with me, end of verse 3. And gave birth to a son, and the Lord said to me, name him Meher Shalhel Hashbaz. (laughs) Easy for me to say. You don't hear that name too often today, do you? Right? I don't know, I haven't met one yet. They say, hey, I want to introduce you to. It's the longest name in the Bible, by the way. And his name means something. 
It's often it did in the case. That it literally means speed to the so- a spoil, hurry to the plunder. Or quick pickings, easy prey. Quick pickings, easy prey. It's further explained here in verse 4. Before the boy knows, the son that's born there, how to say, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. Now, Damascus is the uh, metropolis of, of Syria, not to be confused with Assyria. And Samaria is the, the capital of the northern Israel. And what this is saying is the people that look so big to Ahaz right now are going to be taken away by the king of Assyria. And as we compare Isaiah chapter 8, verse 4, with Isaiah chapter 7, verses 15, 16, and following, the sign given to Ahaz and to the people of Judah would be that before this child born to Isaiah is even old enough to talk, old enough to start eating solid food and discern between right and wrong, his enemies that he's all worked up about are going to be gone. Point's clear. A short time, the thing you fear will be no more. And the people that look so big to Ahaz and have them all worked up in this frenzy are going to be wiped out. That's what he's saying. And God declares that a larger nation would come and overpower Syria and Israel, this alliance, and that's exactly what happened. It's predicted and it happened. King of Assyria sent his armies in to conquer Syria and Israel. They were quick pickings, easy prey. As the Assyrians came in, they took away Syria and Israel's wealth and people. There's only one problem with this. Judah got rid of one enemy only to face a bigger one. Judah got rid of one enemy only to face a bigger one. Reminded of a man who was swimming in a, in a river and, and a little concerned about the possibility of alligators. And so as, as he was in the waters there, he saw another man standing on the shore and he, he yelled out to him, are there any alligators in this water? The man on shore said, no, not a single one. But the man in the water wasn't really completely convinced. So again, he said and asked, are you sure there are no alligators here? And the man on shore replied, absolutely, certainly. Do you see those gray forms in the water? Those are sharks that have chased the alligators away, right? Now, that's what's going on here. Assyria was to become that shark that chased all the alligators away. And then it's going to come after Judah. I remind you that when Ahaz, uh, when, when he was threatened As we saw last week, he was overcome by fear. He made a colossal mistake in calling on the evil nation of Assyria for help. He should have trusted in God, not in people. And Ahaz's trust in people rather than in God was rather costly. Now let me pause here and ask you, are you replacing God with people in any way? How How is fear of what people can do controlling you right now? How is it revealing who's really big in your life? See, fear is winning when people look big and God looks small. That's our first truth lesson. Here's a second lesson for us this morning is don't be fooled by appearances. Don't be fooled by appearances. 
Uh, Look at verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 8. We have here the tale of two rivers. Verse 5, Isaiah says, The Lord spoke to me again, because this people, meaning Judah, has rejected the gentle flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over reason and the son of Remelia. Therefore, the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the river, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. Now, let's, let's, let's unpack this a little bit. The waters of Shiloh is that which flows from the Kidron Valley called the Gion Spring. It was Jerusalem's primary water source. And what's going on here that we need to kind of pull out is, is this contrast between the peaceful, quiet activity of the stream of Shiloh and the mighty waters of the river Euphrates. It's a picture of what seems to be the weakest coming up against the mightiest. See, here, here lies the paradox of walking with God. Often, what looks the mightiest or the strongest is the weakest. And what seems to be the least in appearance is the strongest and the mightiest. Don't be fooled by appearances. There's a beautiful word picture here of God's peaceful activity linked to gently flowing rivers. And as verse 6 says, the people rejected God's help. Why? It's the same thing that often trips us up. They could not look past what their eyes could see. And so they turned to the mighty river, the mighty nation of Assyria, while rejecting the quiet activity of God. Don't be fooled by appearances. See, when we sense silence and silence from God, we wrongly conclude that God's not doing anything. That he's he's disinterested. He doesn't care. Listen, God is active behind the scenes, steadily doing his work, desiring to be our source of strength and help in time of need. We might be able to see him. Does that mean he's not working? It reminds me of one night, there was this house that caught fire, and this young boy was forced to flee to the top of the house, onto the roof. And the father stood on the ground Below with the outstretched arms calling out to his son. And he said, jump, son, I'll catch you. And he, he knew the boy had to jump in order to save his life. But all the boy could see, however, was flame and smoke and blackness. And as you can imagine, the young boy was afraid to jump off and leave the roof. His father kept yelling, jump, son, I will catch you. But the boy protested and he said, Daddy, Daddy, I can't see you. And the father replied, But I can see you, and that's all that matters. See, when when, when God seems silent and we can't see him, God sees us, and that's all that matters. God sees us, He knows what's going on, He promises to be with us always, even when you can't see through the smoke. And through the fiery trial, God sees you. And the question is, am I going to trust what my eyes can see? Or am I going to trust in the God who sees me? Now, I want you to notice back at the end of verse 6 here, it speaks of Ahaz and the people of Judah not only rejecting God's help, but notice it says they were rejoicing over reason and the son of Remelia, which were the big shots there in the, in, the, in the alliance, the northern alliance. 
He's rejoicing over them. Why is he rejoicing over them? Why, what's the reason for the celebration? The reason he's rejoicing is because that mighty Assyria, the nation that they called on for help, it was going to wipe out Judah's enemies. Gone. And that for the moment, Ahaz looks like a genius. Judah was kind of congratulating themselves over Ahaz's decision, patting themselves on the back, patting Ahaz on the back, that he, had, he knew enough to call on Assyria for help. Now, folks, this is where pragmatism can get us in trouble. But sometimes, uh, you know, we just go, well, you know, it's working out fine, so that must mean that, that this is God's led me here. Not always true. Not always true. Just because things work out fine doesn't mean it's an indicator that God was in it, right? We get, we get messed up on that sometimes. All right, because what we have here is a twist to their celebration. Look at verse 7. Therefore, okay, God's going to act here. Therefore, the Lord is about to bring against them, meaning against the people of Judah, the mighty floodwaters of the river Euphrates. He's going to bring against them the king of Assyria with all his pomp. What is this saying to the people when they're rejoicing? Don't celebrate too early. Don't celebrate too early. I mean, kind of get the picture of, you know, they're, they're in the end zone and they're giving high fives to each other and they're, and they're chest pumping each other and, and they're in the end zone doing their celebration thing in the football game when they notice there's a flag thrown on the play. <laughs> Changes everything. You're all celebrating, and the ref's saying, Whoa, slow down a minute here, not so fast. Judah's rejoicing that their reliance on Assyria was the right move. But there's a flag on the play. Follow along as I read that at the end of verse 7 and verse 8. It, mean the floody, mighty floodwaters that represent Assyria, it will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, and then sweep on into Judah swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. What is this saying? Like Germany in 1939 and 40, the Assyrians seemed almost superhuman. And the one that, that, that Judah called on for help, the mighty river, the, the Assyrians... Good news is, they are going to wipe out their enemies, but now they're going to also kind of sweep over into Judah and wipe out Judah, or at least attempt to wipe out Judah. And Ahaz right now isn't looking like such a genius. Don't be rejoicing, Judah. They're coming after you. Now, will Judah be totally wiped out? Well, did you notice something about the extent of the destruction? Verse 8, let me read it again. The mighty flood waters, Assyria, will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, get this, and reaching up to the neck. <laughs> what does that suggest? Almost, but not quite drowned. They're right up to the neck. Okay, in my, in my weird kind of way, my mind kind of goes places that you kind of wonder why it goes there. Well, I read about this couple, and maybe I've shared with this before, but I read about this couple that shared an apartment with a mouse. All right, full disclosure, I hate mice, I'm afraid of mice. I know, that little thing there, I know. You lost some respect for me. They're sharing an apartment with a mouse. And so the husband set this trap to catch that little critter. He placed this makeshift cage in a bucket, 
And then he filled the bucket with water halfway. And the plan was to draw the mouse into the cage. And then the weight of it would drop it into the water and it would drown. Oh, poor mouse. Well, one day, the man checked to see how his plan had worked. And, and he saw that the, the mouse was inside the cage and it dropped in and it worked like a charm. But upon closer inspection, he noticed the water didn't quite cover the top of the cage. And the mouse, still alive now, somehow, I guess they can do this, somehow managed to keep the tip of his nose above the surface of the water by standing on its toe. I guess it can do that. All right, that's where my mind goes. That's the picture here. The people will survive, but barely. They'll have to stand on tiptoe just to keep their head above water. Do you know that feeling? Doesn't feel, life feel like that sometimes? That you're, 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 you're surviving, but your nose is just above the water, and you kind of think, how long can I do this? I'm making it, but, but barely. When is it all going to fall apart? This isn't sustainable. Well, how can we make it? We find some encouragement from our passage here. Why is it? That the people of Judah, the house of David, will be able to survive this attack by the superpower of Syria. The end of verse 8 gives us the answer. With some abruptness, we find the words, O Emmanuel. Emmanuel. God was with Judah. They're not totally wiped out. Why? The land of Judah was Emmanuel's land. God will be with them through it all. And so the people of God would not be completely wiped out. Why not? Because Emmanuel, God with us. God would rescue a remnant. And we see that all the way through the book of Isaiah. He'll, he'll rescue a remnant. He preserves a remnant. Assyria will not be able to annihilate Judah. Assyria, you got to get this. And in another place in Isaiah, it talks about this, that Assyria is not acting on its own. They're a tool in God's hand. Now, church, there is, there, is, there is concern and cause for great concern today as we look around. Don't be fooled by appearances. That which may seem as though they're acting on their own are just tools in the hand of God. Our trust in God must look deeper than appearance. Which really leads me to our third lesson for, for this morning. When faced with some potential threat, God is the one fact we dare not overlook. When faced with some potential threat, whatever is working you up, whatever is giving you fear right now, God is the one fact we dare not overlook. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. Raise the war cry, you nations. Go ahead. Be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. You can prepare for battle all you want. Be shattered. Prepare for battle. Be shattered. Devise your strategy. Come up with the best strategy in the world. It will be thwarted. Propose your best plans. But it will not stand. For God is with us. There it is again. God with us. Emmanuel. It's the same word back as, as in eight, verse 8. 
It could be translated Emmanuel or God with us or with us is God. Now, why does the word, that word show up here? It is a reminder that no matter how great the schemes of people, no matter how thought out and planned attacks may come at us, no matter what life or people throw at us, it will not stand. Why? God is with us. So whatever struggle, whatever fear is confronting you right now, even trying to drown out the presence of God, we are to cry, oh, Emmanuel. It reminds us that God has promised to be with us. It's the cry of a heart that can help us in the face of fear and threatened loss that has a shaking at the core of our being. See, when faced with some potential threat, God is the one fact we dare not overlook. You see, Ahaz wanted king of Assyria with us. The people of Judah wanted northern alliance with us. God says, no, 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 no. It ought to be God with us. It is hard to overstate the significance of God is with us. That God entered our realm, he entered our world in order to be with us. He chose to take on human form, initiated by his great love for us, to be with us. Not in some impersonal way, but in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus came and he was, called, he was, he was to be called Emmanuel, God with us. Church, God is with you. Because God is with you, you can endure that most difficult thing in your life. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying you can endure it, though. Why? God's with you. Because God's with you, you can make it. And God's not just saying, I see what you're going through. No, no, no. He goes through it with us. The only way through the fear crippling us is God with us. Because only His purposes will stand. All the purpose, purposes of men, women, people, whatever it is, no matter how brilliant and mighty they appear and intimidating they might be, all will give way to what God plans and what he wants to happen. That's why our battle cry in the face of fear has to be, oh, Emmanuel, you're the one with me. You're the one who's going to see me through it. Is that, is that your heart's cry? Is that what you've been doing? You're saying, God with us, or is it something else with you? What is it that you want with you more than anything else? Is it him? See, being afraid, being afraid is not wrong in itself. The problem is when that fear is consumed with itself, it rules your life and for a time forgets God. When faced with some potential threat, God's the one fact we dare not overlook. I need to give you one more lesson in the time we have. The one who fears God fears nothing else. The one who fears God fears nothing else. We find in verses 11 and 12 a divine analysis of Judah's approach. What does God think of their strategy? Look with me at verse 11. Isaiah says, The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the ways of this people. He said, do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. 
Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. Now, we can't really be sure as to what this conspiracy thing's all about. There's different translations that may help us with it. But, but I, I'm, I'm going to guess that it's not referring to something specific, but rather in a general sense speaking to how we can start living in fear to all the external pressures and stuff going on around us. Because the world around us can be a scary place. And it's easy to become paranoid and then act on that so you start living your life in fear. Have you noticed, have you noticed what fuels the internet? Have you noticed what dominates political campaigns and talk radio and the news? Fear, fear. And just when you think, oh, we're out of this one, I'll give you another punch of fear. Constant, bombarding our lives. Speaks on, on our Facebook feeds and social media. Just shows up everywhere. Listen, church, we do not need to be afraid of everything that the culture is afraid of. We don't. God calls Isaiah, don't follow the majority. The majority of the people around him responded out of fear. And have you also noticed fear is contagious? It can lead to finding conspiracy under every rock and we can start worrying about a conspiracy here and a conspiracy there. I get it. I get it. But we can then so easily start living as if God isn't in charge. God's in charge. He's in charge. Good thing. And the word to the people in Judah's day is a word for us. For the people of God, Sometimes there can be a lot of attention on secondary issues. And the threat of the nations around them is consuming them. Too much focus and attention there. Where should it be? Where, where, their attention and focus should be on God. There was flight 401 uh, that was bound to, for Miami from New York City many, many years ago now. And uh, they had a load of holiday passengers on this, on this plane. And as the huge aircraft approached the Miami airport for its landing, there was a light that indicated that proper uh, deployment of the landing gear failed to come on. And so the plane then started flying in a large looping circle over the swamps of the Everglades while the, uh, while the cockpit crew checked out the light failure. The question was, had the landing gear actually not deployed or was it just a light bulb that's out or defective or what have you? So to begin with, the flight engineer, he fiddled with the bulb and, and he tried to remove it, but it wouldn't budge. And then another member of the crew, they came and they tried to help. And another member and another member of the crew. And by and by, if you can believe it, all eyes were on this little light bulb that refused to be dislodged from its socket. No one noticed that the plane was losing altitude. And finally it dropped right into the swamp. And while an experienced crew of high-priced and seasoned pilots messed around with a, what, 75-cent uh, light bulb? I don't know. An entire airplane and many of its passengers were lost. The crew momentarily forgot the most basic of all rules of the air. Don't forget to fly the airplane. <laughs> Church, don't forget to fly the airplane. Don't forget. It's why we're here. I mean, are we here to, to mess around with light bulbs? Are we here to fixate on piddly things? 
Are we giving too much attention? We giving too much attention to secondary issues? The people of this day were worrying about the wrong things. Their fear was misplaced. Instead of fearing their enemies, they should what? Verse 13. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He's the one you are to fear. He's the one you are to dread. He will be a sanctuary. Saying, don't be afraid of what man can do, what a confederacy can, might do. No, not fear people. Not fear what others can do. Not fear even uh, our enemies and those who are against our beliefs. No. Fear God. We fear people so much because honestly we fear God so little. We feel, fear people so much because we fear God so little. We're to fear the Lord. Now, those words conjure up all kinds of images and feelings, I know, and I don't really have the time to dig deep into what it means to fear the Lord, and, and go, you can do your homework on that one. But here are some thoughts to take with you. There is a fear that has to do with punishment. It's to live in terror of what God might do to us if we don't shape up. Is that the kind of fear Isaiah is speaking of? Well, to the ones who live in unbelief, who do not know God, who rebel against God in wickedness, then all that's left for them is the punishment of God. But for a believer, for a follower of Jesus Christ, we are not to be driven by this terror of fear that has to do with punishment. Christ took that for us on the cross. But we ought to have worship fear, reverential awe that is motivated by love and honor that is due His name. Perfect love drives out fear, it says in 1 John. Why? John tells us because fear has to do with punishment. You see, the more we, we, we know God, the more we walk in close relationship with Him, the more our fear has to do with reverent submission that leads to obedience and less about going through life wondering when God is going to smack us on the side of the head. Some people live like that. That's not the fear he's talking about. When we fear the Lord, trusting and obeying him, we do not have to live in fear of people. We're not to fear the threats of life. We're to fear the Lord, stand in awe of him. We ought to shift our thoughts to the bigness and greatness of the God of the universe. And when we do, it's then that people won't look so big. Stories told of a new member of the uh, British Parliament who took his eight-year-old daughter on a brief tour of his beloved London. And they came into this uh, Westminster Abbey. As they walked into the, to the building, to the, the, the awesomeness of it just struck the little girl. She stood looking way up at the columns and, and studying the, the beauty and grandeur of the Gothic church building. Her father was intrigued at her concentration. She just looked at all this. He looked down at her and he said, Sweetheart, what are you thinking about? And she answered, Daddy, I was thinking how big you seem at home and how small you look in here. <laughs> I like that. Matter of perspective, right? When we fear people, we must remember that no matter how big they may seem, our God in reality is bigger still. When the heart is being filled with the greatness of God, there's less room for the question, what can people do to me? And at those moments, others have no power, lest we give it to them, 
to manipulate, intimidate, or control us. And we can get all worked up over this threatening situation and that threatening situation and those intimidating people. But remember, Emmanuel, God is with us. He's with you. How will his presence influence what you do this week and how you think and how you go about life? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these words that were written to Judah, but are so potent an application to our lives. I pray we grab a hold of that. Maybe it's just one thing we grab a hold of for today. But I do pray that as we walk out of this building, that we would remember Emmanuel, God is with us. He's with us wherever we go. This week, and we thank you so much for that wonderful truth. Apply it to our lives, I pray in Jesus' name.